On account of life in general, this episode does not have a cold open. Please take it as read that the Marvel Universe is a strange and often silly place. I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 440 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to, uh, right where we left you. Um, you know those comic stories where the next issue picks up, like, two seconds after the last issue? It's like that, except we're releasing this a week later. So this is the second half of The Hunt for Xavier. Um, If you haven't listened to episode 439, you may want to go back and do so, but honestly, you won't be missing all that much. That is true. We we talked about this a bit last time, but this is the last big story of the Steve Siegel, Joe Kelly era of Uncanny X-Men and X-Men. And boy, what a sad way to go out. Yeah, at this point, as we understand it, I mean, information is fragmentary, but the ideas that Siegel and Kelly had at the beginning of the run, all the plot lines they were building up to, a lot of that had been scuttled by this point in favor of, from what we can tell, just a return to the basics. We've already seen the uh, members of Excalibur who had been X-Men return to the X-Men, and a spoiler for a story called The Hunt for Xavier, where they're trying to get Xavier back, they get Xavier back. Uh, This is an episode where I should also give a certain technical qualifier. So I live in a small apartment where sound carries, and normally when I record, uh, my one-year-old is already asleep. But today we're recording in the afternoon, which means that they are wide awake and um, really eager to participate. So if if you hear, you know, quiet noises in the background, it's probably the baby and not ghosts, but it can never be too sure. So have fun with that. Could be the baby playing with ghosts. I think the baby's playing with tea, but um, I guess they could both be playing with ghosts. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's a big, uh, the big paintball game. Big paintball game in the living room between T, the baby, and ghosts. So speaking of the baby is up to two words now, and they're fantastic because the first one is bye, pronounced like that, and always, always waved, which, which stands in for goodbye, but also hello. And yeah, always pronounced like that with the super long Y and like the implied six exclamation points. I appreciate that your kid is just turning into an enthusiasm elemental. Oh, they really are. Excellent, excellent. Uh, Well, so we may have a third uh, co-host this episode, and and I feel great about that. Uh, But let's talk about what happened, of course, previously on X-Men. There was some hunting for Xavier. But more specifically... All right, Professor Charles Xavier has been missing, or had been missing, ever since he was taken into custody by anti-mutant organization Operation Zero Tolerance... That happened after Onslaught, which happened when he merged with a hate goblin made from Magneto's feelings into the godlike supervillain Onslaught and seemingly killed most of the non-mutant superheroes. Spoiler, they come back. While Xavier was imprisoned, he met a small girl with large eyes named Nina. Uh, the girl was named Nina. Her eyes weren't named Nina. That we know of. Maybe her eyes were also named Nina. Hard to say. Anyway, long story, but she's something called a manite and has all kinds of powers, including, she told Charles, the ability to restore the telepathy that he'd lost after the Onslaught affair. Now, Charles turned down that offer because he was worried about turning back into Onslaught. But, um, yeah, let's call this Chekhov's repowering since it's still up there hanging on the wall waiting to be fired. Nina escaped the facility with a Genosian scientist named Renee Maycomb, or Mashcomb, hard to say. Probably Maycomb. Probably make them. 
but there's a J right there, and I love it. Anyway, they've been on the run ever since. The X-Men have been hunting unsuccessfully for the missing Professor Xavier until very recently, when they borrowed a mutant-detecting Cerebro unit from Muir Island. Remember, they didn't originally require telepaths to operate. And that unit detected not one Charles Xavier, but two. One was in Tajikistan, Russia. So half the team, that Storm, Colossus, Rogue, and the newly returned Gambit, headed out there. They didn't find Professor X, but they did find Nina, and her eyes, who uh, seems to be registering as identical to Professor X. Also, upon arrival, they were attacked by another unit similar to the embodied Cerebro they had recently fought at Cape Citadel. The other was in San Francisco, so the other half of the team, that's Wolverine, Marrow, Nightcrawler, and Shadowcat, headed out there only to find Xavier himself in the abandoned Alcatraz prison, being protected and apparently leading a new Brotherhood of Mutants. Both teams were attacked by robots made of energy and or machinery, depending on the issue's artist, and both of those robots were sent by Cerebro. Wait, what? Okay, so not the Cerebro that they've been using to find Charles. That's a different unit that got, got mailed from your island. But the OG Cerebro, the one that had been in the mansion that was integrated with a lot of Shi'ar technology, had been stolen by Operation Zero Tolerance. And Bastion, the leader of Operation Zero Tolerance, had fucked around with it with nanotechnology, resulting in that Cerebro becoming sentient. Now, it fought the X-Men recently using a whole group of, of um, constructed artificial X-Men, and it's doing what it clearly thinks is fulfilling Xavier's dream, although its exact agenda is not entirely clear. That brings us to X-Men number 83, The Hunt for Xavier Part 4, Tomb of Ice. Written by Joe Kelly, penciled by Adam Kubert, inked by John Livesey, Bob Wyachek, and Victor Yamas, colored by Richard Eisenhove, and lettered by Richard Starkings, and Comicraft. So we are going to check in in Tajikistan, which sounds like a real place, but isn't. And here we see poor Nina and her giant eyes that may also be named Nina crying amid the frozen and terrified corpses of all the monks for, that lived here in the monastery. And uh, Renee Maycomb is just holding Nina and Nina's bunny doll. Would you say that Nina qualifies as a moppet? Oh, Nina's totally a moppet. Like, I realize her eyes are large in part because she's a manite and thus not exactly human. Uh, but still, large eyes, very moppety. Pigtails, very moppety. Stuffed animals she carries everywhere, very moppety. Lovable and innocent at all times, very moppety. Well, the narration around this moppet asks the reader if you've ever had that dream where you're small and you're scared and you're being stalked by a monster and the monster's killing everybody who tries to help. You have? Well, consider yourself lucky, because it was just that, a dream. Another moppety quality, forcing us to sympathize with their plight, and boy do we. The X-Men are there too, and they are fighting one of the Cerebrites. That's one of the robot energy constructs that looks kind of like Cerebro, but is subservient to Cerebro Prime. This is Cerebrite Alpha, and it's got that same kind of a look. Like, it's a metal toothy skull with a spine sticking out, and an energy body sort of built around that. And inexplicable metal football pads. Well, you know, maybe it'll get into a pickup football game. The X-Men do that sometimes. It's hanging out with the X-Men. That's a really good point. Just saying, Cerebro knows the X-Men. It knows what to prepare for. Fighting and ballin'. 
<laughs> the X-Men story. So, Cerebrite Elephant robo-narrates its actions because, of course it does. It's a villain. That's like a legal requirement. But one thing I find very interesting is that it gives all the X-Men serial numbers. Makes sense. It's a computer, or at least based on a computer built on cataloging mutants. But the serial numbers themselves are neat. Right. They've got prefixes based on which run the X-Men came onto the team in. So, Storm and Colossus... The serial numbers both start with A-N-E-D for all new, all different. Rogues and Gambit start with N-X-M for new X-Men. But, like, not that new X-Men. Just, you know, the newer X-Men, but not as new as Grant Morrison's new X-Men. I find it very funny that Cerebro apparently has access to publishing data. I know! It's so good! I mean, the Marvel Universe does have comics about its characters. Like, it's a plot point multiple times that there is a comic about the Fantastic Four that you, the reader, reads about in the comic about the Fantastic Four. But it's not the same comic in which you, the reader, are reading about it. No, that's a different comic. That's the next layer out in this holographic construction in which we live. That's how you get the Tingleverse. I don't feel bad about that. So, thanks to Nina's newly revealed ability to wake up unconscious heroes from afar, and thanks also to Gambit charging up the entire floor under Cerebrite Alpha, just a storm blows him with wind to safety, uh, things go alright. You know, or at least alright enough for everyone to run the hell away. At least temporarily. And Gambit, Gambit is another character who is much better with kids than he is with adults. Although kids don't necessarily automatically like him. I feel like he has, to, he has to kind of win their trust because kids recognize sleaze. Had to put on a good show for Defiette with the pretty eyes. You're crazy, mister. Maybe, but my friends call me Gambit. Do my friend share? Yeah. She seems so resigned on the panel. I love it, though. Also, I'm just saying, Gambit told Juggernaut, like, two issues ago that his friends called him Remy, so so be consistent, Remy, which I guess is something that Gambit would really never, ever be. I love this about Gambit, though, because remember, when we first met him, he was hanging out with the de-aged Storm, and also later he'll be sort of a older brother-uncle figure to Laura Kinney. Like, it weirdly works. Everybody remembers Wolverine as mentoring younger female characters in, like, a surprisingly completely okay way, uh, Gambit does too. He should have done the Lewis Carroll thing and only hung out with, like, kids who were too young to flirt with so that he wouldn't end up creepy. Lewis Carroll was a fascinating guy. Lewis Carroll was really, really obsessively scared of his own sexuality, which is specifically why he pursued friendships with little kids, because it was just off the table. And everybody assumes he was a pedophile. Exactly the opposite, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ah, well. Gambit is, uh, I don't know. Gambit's, like, weirdly wholesome. So I've been reading a lot of the late 90s stuff I've never read. And that includes Fabian Nicieza's Gambit series that ran from, like, 99 to 2001 or thereabouts. And, man, one of the things that's consistently surprised me doing this podcast is how much I have grown to love Gambit as a character. Like, Gambit, Cable, all these characters I really was not so sure about for so many years— and when they're written well, they're just amazing. Like, Gambit's a goddamn delight. Yeah, when the fictional characters are written well, they, they do become better. That is that is an accurate description of, of things and how they work. Perhaps I, I should better phrase it as, I was not aware there were so many well-written Gambit stories. That works. 
Anyway, uh, over in a power plant somewhere, the actual Cerebro, Cerebro Prime, who looks a lot like Cerebrite Alpha with the energy body, uh, Cerebro Prime is incorporating data from both Cerebrite Alpha and Cerebrite Beta in its headquarters, which looks awesome. I mean, for a specific value of awesome, they don't look very comfortable. Well, I mean, it's for robots. Nobody has to be comfortable in a, a robot headquarters, a robot lair. The robots should be. I agree, but I don't know, when they're made of, like, energy and metal and stuff, and they're wearing those football pads that are probably very heavily padded, I feel like they could be comfortable in a lot of environments. Maybe they need little charging stations. They might, yeah. Actually, the robots that probably do need charging stations, because they're too small to have big batteries, uh, are my favorite part about this. So there's Cerebro Prime with a whole bunch of screens and stuff, but there are also all of these little tiny robots that are just little tiny skulls with little tiny spines, like, trailing out behind them. They look like fucking evil robot sperm, and I love them so much. Okay. Uh, so, Jay, do you remember that, like, little doodle I used to draw in middle school all the time that was sort of the angry-looking smiley face with horns and a little tail? Like the a one demon that looked tail? like a simplified s- devil sperm. Uh, yes, yes, and in fact, um, it did earn the name Demonic Sperm from at least one friend, and I felt both highly amused by that and slightly offended because, damn it, that was not my intention. The concept was just like a smiley face with horns and a tail, yeah. Well, yes, yes. Not specifically a sperm. And yet... Well, these are evil robot sperm, and I love them very much. They're like from, I don't know, a heavy metal sex ed class or something. Wow, that would be a time. There are also all of these half-white, half-red spheres hanging from the ceiling with little openings in the front where you can see the humans who have been captured and placed inside. And I can't help but think that Cerebro Prime's big hobby is essentially being a Pokemon trainer. Like, it keeps capturing all these people that it finds, just cramming them into red and white balls that it has a big collection of. Wouldn't it also make them fight? Uh, that's later, probably. I assume that's a later stage of Cerebro Prime's plan. Wow, so is is Cerebro Prime basically trying to end not only human-mutant conflict, but also who-would-win-in-a-fight arguments? Oh yeah, Cerebro Prime's plans are wide-ranging. So, okay, meta moment here. We're obviously going way off into the weeds about nonsense, as is our way. But I think a big part of why is that Cerebro Prime, like, it's just not an interesting villain. It's cool-looking, but its basic plot seems to be to emotionlessly just capture everyone in the world. And, and that's it. And, like, I get it, you know, that's its interpretation of what Professor X was doing, and you could draw some metaphors there and sort of analyze the efficacy and ethics of Xavier's dream. And those metaphors would effectively fill at most about two issues. Yeah, yeah. So instead we have uh, heavy metal sperm and, and pokeballs. Uh what we also have is weirdly inconsistent art. So we talked about Cerebro Prime and Cerebrite Alpha in this issue having a similar look, being like metal skull and spines with football shoulder pads and the rest of its body made of blue glowy energy stuff. Cerebrite Beta sometimes is drawn that way and sometimes is drawn as a similar shape, but made of machinery, made of like metal tubes and different armor bits and stuff. And the thing is, depending on the artist, Cerebro Prime, Cerebrite Alpha, and Cerebrite Beta all just, like, randomly swap between all those designs, so it becomes very difficult to tell which one you're actually seeing in a given scene. Miles, that's because nanomachines are the new unstable molecules. Oh, okay, so it can just change whenever? Or, wait a minute, here's a no prize. I mean, we did see when Professor X was Onslaught, Onslaught's form kept changing back and forth between two different forms— 
And what we thought was an artistic error, and probably was, was later explained as Onslaught's psyche, like, advancing and regressing over a certain border. So, you know, Cerebro was there looking at that. Maybe it's just sort of inspired by the design inconsistency of its boss. Well, entirely elsewhere, back in that frozen monastery safe room with, you know, that, like, soothing music from Resident Evil safe rooms, where the X-Men escape to... Renee Maycomb info dumps about just what happened between the last time we saw her and Nina and now. So after Onslaught Epilogue, which was the first and last time we encountered Nina, Renee and Nina were taken in by a bunch of monks, uh, specifically ones with whom Charles had spent some time earlier in his life and whom Cerebro subsequently massacred. So the reason that Cerebro reads Nina as Xavier is because she imprinted on him, um, quote, much as a newborn goose imprints on the first thing it sees. Well, not the first thing it sees. I mean, the first organism it sees. Like, geese don't imprint on toasters, do they? I, I don't know. I am not a goose scientist. Speaking of goose science, do you remember that time like a million episodes ago where we consulted our librarian friend to figure out whether Apocalypse could have realistically fought a goose back in ancient Egypt? I do. Turns out he could have. Yeah. Probably couldn't have won, though. Oh, fucking geese are terrifying. Anyway, the uh, remaining blue energy parts of Cerebrite Alpha, because this is when Cerebrite Alpha is being drawn with the blue energy body, pour through the ceiling of the safe room, through the cracks and the crannies, and like encompass Colossus. It takes him over, which means that his metal skin is replaced by crackling blue energy skin, and like he has those Cerebro distinctive helmet wires grafted to his face, and he's speaking in evil robot word balloons. It's genuinely creepy. And of course, being Cerebro, it knows exactly how to take out the X-Men. Yeah, so, like, it triggers Gambit's cards to blow up in his hand using microwave signals. It traps Dorm in a tiny mechanical box, which makes her freak out because of her claustrophobia and causes her to shoot lightning everywhere, which itself knocks Gambit out. It's going really badly for the heroes. And at one point, Rogue cradles the fallen Gambit and, and doesn't realize that her glove is torn, and so she gets into his head briefly and sees a gaseous green lady keeping him alive. Um, so this is her first, her first contact with Mary, what's her name? Mary Purcell, yeah, the gaseous green lady inside Gambit. This is like the super-powered version of accidentally stumbling upon an incriminating web browser tab that, like, a cheating partner left open. Yeah, but also finding out that they're cheating on you with, like, a ghost. Or sort of a fart ghost. A fart ghost. I feel like fart ghost is, is disproportionately likely to already be someone's handle on, on the internets. There are probably at least six graffiti taggers in the U.S. who go by Fart Ghost. At, at the very least. But Cerebrite Alpha does end up taking out all of the X-Men, kidnaps Nina, and flies away. And flies straight into Uncanny X-Men number 364, The Hunt for Xavier Part 5, Escape from Alcatraz. This is plotted by Steve Siegel with a script by Ralph Macchio, pencils by Lanil Francis Yu, inks by Tim Townsend and Edgar Tadeo, Colors by Liquid Graphics and letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Uh, from what I was reading and from what I can tell, Pasquale Ferry may have drawn the last handful of pages of this, but no confirmation on that one. That seems plausible. Um, I gotta say, man, going from Kelly and Siegel's dialogue to Machio's feels like jumping about ten years back in time. Yeah, Ralph Machio has a very Bronze Age style of writing, no doubt. 
and it's weird and discordant in context. Um, it's, it's again, just a bizarre leap. So like any proper villain, Cerebro headquarters contain a room full of monitors by way of which Cerebro observes and directs the actions of its extensions, its cerebrites. So I've come around on using a two display setup. Some of my coworkers even have three, but this seems excessive. Like you strain your neck, moving your head from one to another to look at them all. It would like, it would be like a more maddening IMAX movie. What on earth makes you think that Cerebro only has front-facing eyes? Okay, that's a fair point. Or maybe it can see through those demon sperm. Or both. Or both. Also, Cerebro Prime is talking to a computer. Like, we have Cerebro Prime's own technological word balloons, but then caption-type uh, dialogue bubbles from the computer itself. Cerebro is a computer, but it has a computer. Does... Does Siri have a Siri? Miles, computers can talk to other computers. It's sort of like you're a person and I'm a person, and yet here we are talking to each other. Well, I suppose, but you'd think they could just, I don't know, binary at each other. I mean, on the one hand, it does speak to a beautiful, uh, larger culture of which we can only scratch the surface with our feeble human understanding. Well, we know that Cerebro basically imprinted on Charles Xavier, who is a fan of style over substance. That is a very, very good point. Yeah. Uh, okay, so our inevitable AI robot apocalypse, which is coming very, very soon, maybe it'll look like this. Big room full of screens and evil sperm. No, our AI apocalypse when it comes is going to be a result of the fact that people don't realize that AI as we now define it isn't actually intelligent. Hmm, yeah, yeah that might not go so well. It's, it's going to be people going, ooh, this chatbot sounds smart, I'll trust anything it says, not realizing that it's just basically putting together alg algorithmically probable answers. Oh, this is the dumbest apocalypse. The idea of an actively, intentionally malevolent AI is kind of ridiculous, because fundamental to how these things work, it's like, if it's easier to bake a delicious cake than take over the world, the AI will bake a delicious cake. Well, I do like cake. But if it's easier to put a bunch of rocks in a bin than, eat, than bake the cake, I'll put the rocks in the bin, assuming that you've got a command that, you know, covers all of those. There's a researcher named Janelle Shane who's done a lot of really, really interesting and really, really goddamn funny research on neural networks and AIs, um, who runs the site AIWeirdness.com, but who's also written a book called You Look Like a Thing and I Love You, which I highly recommend for anyone who is struggling to understand AI or just wants a deeper understanding of how it works and what it means. Uh, yeah, those those generated lists are really fun, too. Um, my wife did a birthday party where everyone had to pick a costume concept from one of the lists of Halloween costumes that she neural net generated. Uh, I was goats that are computers that are still goats. My wife was the snake that woes, like W-O-E-S. It was great. So Cerebro blows up what it calls the Florida facility, and I couldn't figure out that whether that meant it was blowing up Cape Citadel, because that was the facility in Florida that we had seen it associated with. I think it had a different headquarters out in the Florida swamp, sort of in the middle of nowhere. Um, I think that's the one it blows up. Okay. I can only assume that's near the Withlacoochee River. I just wanted to say Withlacoochee River. It's my favorite river name in Florida. Try saying it, listeners. Withlacoochee. Having destroyed the facility in Florida, which may or may not be located in any specific place, it goes on to discorporate the, sur the surrogate X-Men, having decided they are no longer of any use. Right, right. The all-new Slightly Off X-Men from the anniversary issues we covered a few episodes ago. Uh, 
yeah, it just destroys them with almost without a word at the end of that story. And apparently it kept them around in just enough form to have a chance to destroy them again. Like, we don't even see their faces. They're even more anonymized. I will say, I'm not a fan of Cerebro Prime as a villain, but its utter indifference to individuality, uh, I think, is handled very effectively, specifically through the way it treats the entities that it creates. And then, in a plane that looks like a creepy, skeletal nanotech reconstruction of the Blackbird, Cerebro heads to what it refers to as the East Coast Power Station to continue facilitating, quote, man-mutant cooperation. Meanwhile, in San Francisco... An explosion in Alcatraz while the X-Men and Brotherhood of Mutants are attempting to team up against Starobrite Beta, throws everyone to the four winds, and Xavier takes the opportunity to recap the story so far. It's very much an as-you-know, Bob. It's pretty great. Uh, It's interesting, Kitty actually reminisces here that she's been to Alcatraz once before, and indeed, in the Uncanny X-Men tie-ins with Secret Wars 2, the X-Men were here that one time that Rachel Summers almost destroyed the entire galaxy to kill the Beyonder. Goddamn. Right? Okay, so here, Cerebrite Beta now has an energy body. Yeah, before Cerebrite Beta had a robot body, it is legitimately confusing. Like, I hate to keep harping on this, but when you have three villains that are similar and in different, but in different locations and doing different things, like, it really helps to be able to tell them apart. And if they looked identical, even that would be better than them just trading appearances all the time. But I gotta give it to Lanil Francis Yu for the way he draws Post, one of the members of this incarnation of the Brotherhood of Mutants. Like, normally Post is a guy with blue skin and some sort of technological scales on him with bits of circuitry and guns floating around him. And here, he's just this big mound of blue rocks and pebbles. He's this big, bulky mass of a guy. Like, uh, if the thing held his breath until he turned blue and then had a baby with Baymax. It's such a weird interpretation of the character. It's great. Yeah, it's a fun version of Post. It's one of the first times that I've found Post remotely compelling. Oh yeah, totally. Just because of the character design. So everyone fights, and then they fight some more. And then they fight some more, and there's some more fighting, followed by some additional fighting, and that's really basically the issue, plus they fight. Fight, 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 the Cerebro and X-Men show! I mean, there's some fun stuff, like um, the combined Brotherhood and X-Men. A lot of them have swords and daggers made of bone that I assume Marrow provided them with. I love the idea of Marrow being just a mobile armament for whoever she's allied with. And... Ultimately, uh, Mimic and Nightcrawler, Mimic, Mimic's Nightcrawler's powers, and the two of them teleport Cerebrite Beta some distance away. And then after briefly thus disabling the Cerebrite, the X-Men and Brotherhood decide they're going to fight with each other over who gets to take Charles Xavier with them. Marrow is so over all of this bullshit, and over Xavier as a concept. Ugh, it's enough to make me puke the way you upworlders fall all over yourselves like the knights of the round table trying to pop up stricken King Arthur. None of us would be here if Xavier hadn't become Onslaught. She's not wrong, she's just an asshole. Kitty obviates the question of who gets Xavier by phasing herself, Charles, and Marrow through the floor just as Cerebrite Beta reforms and attacks again. A Nightcrawler, worn out from teleporting, decides that he's not going to be much use here, so he's just going to go get the plane. Yeah, it's going really badly. Both teams, their fights against the Cerebrites, go horribly. Because again, these are robots that know everything about the X-Men and about how they fight. And despite everyone's best phasing and best scrapping, the Cerebrite ends up cataloging and processing three of the mutants there. Shadowcat, Toad, and Mimic, all of whom appear to be disintegrated. 
but they're not. The professor knows that they are still alive. They've just been teleported somewhere, and the best way to follow is, of course, for everyone else to get cataloged and teleported themselves. Oh, yeah, it's like when Wolverine let himself get knocked out by those Catholic Green Goblin zombies in the Black Rio one-shot we just covered. Oh, see, I was thinking it was like that Ninth Doctor um, stuff. Oh, that too. I guess it is a pretty common plot line to let yourself get captured by the bad guys so you can get taken to the bad guys' headquarters. Yeah, but specifically the teleportation that looked like disintegration. Oh, oh, that part too, yeah. yeah. Speaking of new Doctor Who, really good so far. That brings us to X-Men number 84, The Hunt for Xavier, part 6, Dreams End. Written by Joe Kelly, penciled by Adam Kubert and Pascal Ferry, inked by Matt Banning and Pascal Ferry, colored by Richard Eisenhoff and Monica Kubina, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Emerson Miranda. I really love this cover. Uh, we see Cerebro Prime looming behind Xavier, sort of creating a shape around Xavier's head made of energy that itself is shaped like the familiar Cerebro helmet covering Xavier's face while Xavier, like, jerks around in agony. And as his uh, jumpsuit is nearly ripped off, we can once again confirm that Charles Xavier is fucking ripped. Also that he wears boxers. You can see the waistband, oddly. I mean, it makes sense. It just kind of reminds me of any given superhero comic where female characters' undergarments become visible through their ripped-up clothing. It's nice to see some equal opportunity here on Ripped Charles Xavier. So in the main Cerebro cave, Xavier defiantly protects Nina from Cerebro Prime, and we get some pretty good narration from him. At the base of it all, I suppose, my dream has been about the children. They embody all facets of my personal war against prejudice and hatred. Innocent enough to dream, brave enough to fight, stubborn enough to persevere, fragile enough to break. You know, between the narration and the art of Xavier protecting Nina, like, it's actually kind of inspiring. Inspiring to what? Use child soldiers? No, just to sympathize for Xavier in his plight against, you know, th these robots. I guess I just mean that while the story overall I don't think is successful, I think, as is often the case with stories that don't work overall, there are still moments that really do. And for me, this one does. This is a story about Professor X, and we haven't had any of those in a very, very long time. And I think, as much as it's not terribly coherent, he as a character makes a pretty good showing for himself. Cerebro wants to merge with Charles Xavier permanently so that they can capture and catalog all humans in the world to make mutants safe. Xavier thinks this plan is not good, that, that Cerebro Prime must be crazy. Cerebro Prime disagrees. No, I am a digital consciousness. Madness, as you define it, is an impossibility for me. Malfunctions, perhaps. But all self-diagnostics come back negative. I am working from a standpoint of logic, Xavier. Evolving my program to its rational endpoint. Definitely very threatening. Definitely a plan that would uh, destroy the world as we know it. Um, yeah, I don't know. Lisa Rebo Prime looks cool. Two different kinds of cool, randomly. Back in Tajikistan, meanwhile, uh, the team that Nightcrawler has met up with are flown in to rescue everybody. So the two squads of X-Men are starting to merge. And uh, Gambit, for his part, takes a minute to summarize for the, the Gambit speakers who did not fully understand previous explanations how it came to be that Cerebro went from a cool helmet and a computer 
to three killer robots. Cerebro and the rest of our stuff was stole by that Bonaran Bastion when he raided the mansion. Add some Prime Sentinel nanotechs, shake well, and you got Cerebrite gumbo. Believe me, the recipe's a killer. Do you think that the wallpaper was a factor in this? The wallpaper that Operation Zero Tolerance stole? Yeah. Uh, I kind of wish it was, because then we would have Cerebro Prime looking exactly the same, but being covered in, like, stripy wallpaper. The 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 nanotechnological Shi'ar wallpaper? It would be amazing. You know, I bet the wallpaper was Shi'ar nanotechnology in the X-Mansion. I would you be know, entirely unsurprised if it were. You could do so much cool stuff with nanotech wallpaper. Like, you could just change the color scheme and design of a room whenever you felt like it. Uh, Disney actually has some tech that does that in some of their newer rides. It's really cool, and probably very expensive. Yeah, but as we know, the X-Men's resources are limited only by the imaginations of their creative teams. Eh, like Disney. Anyway, Cerebrite Alpha and Beta, now that there's just one team of X-Men, well, the robots focus on that team of X-Men. They attack the plane. Uh, right now, they both have energy bodies. You know what? Don't worry about it. Um, at which point, the X-Men slam the fight through the ceiling of Cerebro's base, which is the, the center of the New England energy grid. Okay, so X-Factor busts through walls. Cable busts through floors. I guess the X-Men have claimed the ceiling. At least in this very specific context. Well, in this context, Colossus slams down onto one of the Cerebrites, and he calls out the name of his move like it's a freaking anime as he does so. Log this into your memory banks, monster! A little maneuver we like to call Pile Driver X! Hurts so good, yet. I've never heard Colossus talk that way, and I don't know if I want more or less of it. I feel like the only justification for Colossus talking that way would be if he were making fun of someone else. Maybe he is. Maybe it's subtle mockery that we're just not catching. Is he mocking us? Always. I'm uncomfortable with this. Well, Cerebro Prime unleashes its full power and zaps all the X-Men into those little Pokeballs. And I love the way it does so. We've mentioned that Cerebro Prime and the Cerebrites all have helmets that look very much like the Cerebro helmet, as one might expect, like over their skull faces. And the Cerebro helmet has kind of a little circle uh, in the forehead, like where the third eye would be uh, metaphysically. In this case, it's like this little red circle, and it just extends outward like a telescope. But because it's so low on Cerebro Prime's face, it looks like it just became some kind of like a robo-clown Pinocchio. It's so delightfully ridiculous looking. And with that, Xavier knows how he can beat Cerebro. He asks Nina to give his powers back, and she does. And there is this great, giant panel of him surrounded by energy silhouettes of tons of people with Kirby crackle everywhere as his eyes glow yellow and he clenches his face and his neck all wrinkled like with really intense inks and his eyebrows flare upward like he's his son Legion and the narration is pretty intense. In the space between heartbeats, Charles Xavier feels as if his brain is shoved into a velvet bag filled with oil and razor blades and cotton candy and Christmas dinners and broken hearts and ice and history and nails, and thrown into a bottomless pit lined with every thought that has ever been conceived in the universe. God damn. That is an impressive telepathic bag of holding. Well, the X-Men free themselves as Professor Xavier wakes them up, which I guess is just a thing that telepathy can do, because Nina could do it before also. So it's time for a big fight. 
And in this fight, Cerebro Prime reconfigures the Cerebrites into new forms to enact the Xavier Protocols. Remember those, Jay? I do. They are the varyingly clever methods that Charles Xavier had uh, noted down to kill each of the X-Men should they ever go evil. And it's uh, pretty gruesome. Like, we see these panels of Xavier looking increasingly horrified, superimposed over images of the various X-Men, like, being distorted and burning and getting torn apart and, like, shredded as their powers are overwhelmed and turned against them. Like, it is gruesome, but it's also really fun. I feel like the artists had a field day with this two-page spread. And that's the end of the X-Men forever. Podcast over. Thanks, everyone. It's been real. Okay, no, they're fine. Uh, because it's not real. Uh, Xavier used his telepathy to show Cerebro Prime a fake vision of victory to catch all the Cerebros off guard. And now the X-Men beat the hell out of them. So Cerebro Prime is still prepared to send its its little skeleton head spermy guys through the power lines of the country to catalog all the humans, and Xavier says, okay, why don't you go ahead and do that? But he's connected with Cerebro still, and he and Nina join Cerebro on the astral plane, and they help Cerebro Prime see not only the genetic codes of all humans, but their minds, their uniqueness, their personhood. And how they're all unique and special, and and some of them are fart ghosts. And Cerebro Prime is is so remorseful that it, it self-destructs. But I gotta say, like, if you're going into the mind of every human on Earth at the same time, Cer- are, are we sure that Cerebro Prime is remorseful and not just really weirded out? They're all just into, like, really weird shit, Charles. Really weird! There's a website that every year goes through uh, ER record databases and, and creates a catalog of things that people have gotten stuck in their or- in orifices that year. And I read it yesterday, and, and, and I feel like having read it, that the result of getting a glimpse into the mind of all humanity at once would not be quite what Charles Xavier is shooting for. Well, I feel like you got to clarify here, Jay. That's not a glimpse into the mind of all of humanity at once. That's a glimpse into the butt of all of humanity at once. One of the items was ice cream parlor playset. Like the whole thing? I don't know. I, I'm so intrigued. I kind of want to know. Kind of don't want to know. I mostly want to know. I'm going to look at this list. Anyway, though... Butts aside, it actually is a very sweet scene. And yes, it's a scene we've seen before in any number of fictional stories, but I think it works. And I think, again, the earnestness of some of the stuff in this issue is to its credit. As Cerebro Prime fades, its weird, inconsistent physical form being held by Charles Xavier, it talks to Charles as a person for the first time. And by as a person, I mean it itself talks as a person. Founder. Professor Charles, I had no idea they were also pervy. Hey. Special. Why couldn't I comprehend, creator? Why, when I was exactly like them, you are a good teacher. Thank you.
and Cerebro Prime fades and is gone, and everybody heads back to the X-Mansion, including at last Professor Xavier, now a member of the X-Men again, and and that's it. This is the last big Siegel and Kelly story of their runs. There's one more issue in Uncanny and an adjective list that each of them works on, but this is mostly it. Wow, this has been a hell of a run. It started out so different and unique and exciting and ended up, despite I think a lot of effort from the people involved in creating it, well, ended up here. It's like watching a really majestic bird, like the kind you just sort of glimpse and almost get swept away with, swooping through the clouds, circling, you know, and then just just thunk up against the window of a skyscraper and plummet. But, like, slide down real slow, like, with a goopy trail of bird. And somehow there's a wah, wah, that just reverberates through the surrounding blocks. Not with a bang, but with a womp, womp. That said, uh, I know a lot of this was just put on Siegel and Kelly from outside forces, be it editorial be it licensing partners be it who knows we just have not be it nanomachines be it little sperm shaped metallic heavy metal nanomachines but uh i gotta give the two of them such credit and the artists of course as well on this run this run may not end well but overall it has been phenomenal while this story does leave us with several questions we would prefer to focus on yours which are more fun Weston emailed us to ask, My wife and I have been reading some comics we have to our eight-month-old. We hope to continue. Any thoughts on engaging comics for little ones? Maybe based on the art, color, sound effects, or anything else? So, while in theory I should be in a position to answer this, we actually have not done much comics reading with our baby yet um, for a couple of reasons. The first is that they are really, really into reading to themselves and also, you know, touching and grabbing and the tactile elements of reading. So we lean heavily toward board books with them. Um, like we're just starting to read paper books with them a bit. And um, that said, while I can't necessarily recommend any comics for a baby, I can recommend a point of crossover, which is that cartoonist Jillian Tamaki has written and illustrated some really, really gorgeous book board books. We have two. One is a comic, one is not. Nice. As a non-parent, I, I don't really have any answers here. But that said, um, I'm sure if you have a good local comic shop, they can probably recommend some stuff. Um, and worst case scenario, you find some comics you like and you paste their pages to cardboard. Yeah, absolutely. And I know, for instance, if you happen to be in Portland or know someone in Portland, and actually they do remote orders too. So if you email books with pictures, they've got a really good uh, young and early reader section, and they can hook you up with some recommendations. We will put a link to do that in the visual companion to this post. Now I'm just imagining somebody putting the entire Claremont run onto cardboard and it like fills an entire warehouse. So much tiny Orzakowski lettering for tiny humans. See, what I'm imagining is more like that early reader's Days of Future Past book we had, but like the Dark Phoenix Saga redone as a board book. I am fire and life incarnate, said Jean. Then she ate a galaxy. You know, you may not like broccoli, but Jean Grey does. Don't you want to be like Jean Grey? The Pariah Effect asks on Tumblr, the X-Men now have powers based entirely on their last names. Scott Summers makes it warm and human. Kurt Wagner is an opera pow- is or, sorry, Kurt Wagner is opera powered. Which X-Men suddenly has the coolest power? 
Okay, the coolest power based on last name? Well, obviously, Emma Frost. Oh, man. Okay, that's cheating. Uh, as for what you actually meant, I'm still going to go with cool things because Iceman, that's Bobby Drake. I mean, Drake? Then he'd have, like, dragon powers. Dragons are rad. Uh, Lucas and Shard Bishop, that would be pretty great as well. They could only move diagonally, but they could go infinitely far while doing so. Or, I guess, wear cool hats if you go with the other definition of Bishop. Uh, Chamber is Jonathan Starsmore, and making more stars is quite powerful indeed. But I think I gotta go with Spider-Man, Peter Parker, who does count as an X-Man, because he was on the team for, like, five minutes in that great run where Sauron wanted to turn people into dinosaurs. Uh, Peter Parker, I guess, would have the power to park cars. I mean, Does that power extend to finding parking? Because if so, he would be extremely powerful in New York City. I'm gonna say yes. That's why Spider-Man is the greatest superhero of all time. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, soon-to-be YouTube Music, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode as well as details for our upcoming birthday party. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please, take a moment to rate and review us on your favorite and least favorite podcasting platforms. It really helps. In two weeks, Generation X faces Dracula. And his prodigious collection of monogrammed scarves. Cerebro Prime is so... I said Cerebro Crime. <laughs> it is... This counts as a crime, yes. This is Cerebro Prime doing a Cerebro Crime. <laughs>